You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new centerfire rifle ammunition terminal ascent. Now, the terminal ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The terminal ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet, and it comes in a variety of cartridges, including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06, and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com. And while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 61, the good, the bad, and the three-point buck. Settle in, everyone, for a little story time. Nick shares the ups and downs from his experience of the 2020 whitetail season in Michigan. From what went good to what went bad, and how the whole story wraps around to taking the last day of archery, meat buck. He goes into detail on the after the gun opener, six whitetail butchering party, and why it's important to be present for your deer being processed. Nick finishes off with a breakdown of his own heart tacos. All this and more on the next episode of Huntivore. Well, hey, folks. Beautiful day here in Michigan. I believe it's the, at the time of recording this, it's the 1st of December. And I'm sitting here in like 45 degree weather, no snow, at least here on the west side of the state. And uh, yeah, feeling good about it. Um, Recording this also midday, so it's like, Man, I got all kinds of sunshine out here. It really has been a sunny November. Um, the few times that I have sat in November, uh, mainly the last day of archery, it's just been super sunny this whole time. But anyway, this whole episode is more of just a, a story time, just a recap of my experience through this season. So you're going to kind of have to glean out information to take with you because there's definitely some things that you should do. And there's certainly a lot of things that uh, you shouldn't. And I'll uh, I'll make sure to make make a point to have those out. But yeah, this uh, we're going to take us all the way back to October 1st uh, archery season as it kicked off. A couple things were in my favor and a couple things were not. One of the things in my favor was I made some purchases this year uh, to kind of change up my archery game, which eventually did make me successful. So a couple things that were new in my arsenal this year is I jumped on the saddle bandwagon. Good friend Tim Clark uh, hooked me up with 
uh, a saddle, at least some information to get a saddle from Tethered. I ended up with the Phantom just because it didn't have the size range and it could go, it could basically expand and close uh, without there being a certain size. So that's why I did go with that one. Uh, ended up purchasing some climbing sticks. I picked up those Hawk Helium full extension or full length uh, that have the button and the straps. I think they're 30 inches. Anyway, I got the triple pack of those. I got three. And then um, ended up from, um, from another buddy getting the mini platform that attaches to the top. Um, Artisan Fabricators is, I think, his uh, his company name. Anyway, that, that little piece that bolts onto the top of those sticks has been a real game changer. Uh, seeing other guys use them, I'm like, man, those things have got to be cumbersome. you got to carry them out there. But after getting giving them a shot and trying them out, I was like, oh, these things will really work. Probably my biggest thing is that I ended up having to go DIY and realizing that I'm a short guy. Uh, my, my legs don't reach as far as probably normal people. Um, climbing a tree, I mean, keeping compact that, you know, the strength is there. I can definitely muscle my way up, but I wanted to make, find a way to get some distance between each stick. So I end up coming up with my, what I'm calling my DIY cinch strap aiders. And it kind of works on that nader suede type deal where I've seen there's one short one on one leg and one long one. And what I've been able to do is I had two cinch straps that had long since expired. Uh, the, the clips were not working or, the, well, definitely the one was too short to even use as a cinch strap. So at that point, I cut off the cinch and kept the hook, made two loops and tied those off with a figure eight knot so that I had two leg holes. And currently, uh, there's a zip strip or a zip tie on there that I can move up and down to snug down that loop so I can snug it down onto my boot. Connecting the two is a, a piece of elastic that I've looped up, and I have a carabiner on there so that I can attach them together or detach them together. I thought that was going to be important. turned out not to be necessary, but so anyway, it's on there. But if I run one of those hooks with the uh, leg loop attached, then it runs up through the harness, comes down through the other side of the harness, and leaving one hook on the opposite side and then the leg loop there, I am able to essentially have hooks that I can hook onto the bottom step of my climbing stick, pitch my toe into the tree, and push up. I tell you, that has worked out awesome. I am able to get another three feet in between those sticks as if it was like almost a dummy stick that was there. So essentially, my short, squatty little self can get all the way up to around 18 feet. And I feel good standing at 18 feet. Could I extend that a little more? With practice. With practice, I could probably make that a little better. I'm sure even adding an, a, added a plat, an add-on platform would also help. But that little mini platform that I got is just working slick. It's a nice little perch that I can stand on to make my shots. 
So that was the new uh, system that eventually comes into play here into this long, drawn-out story. The story is going to, I guess, going to begin. I'm calling this the good, the bad, and the three-point buck because the venture for this eventual three-point buck was a long archery season. Some things fell into play early off in food. Seeing how our corn, we put in at the turkey farm early day corn, real short day stuff, and we were able to harvest that all off by the first week of October. For the turkey farm and the business, this was a great thing because now we've got all of our harvest corn in and we're able to make feed for the next year and we now we can focus in on processing for Thanksgiving. Me being the only hunter in the family, it provided a tough situation where the normal cover that was there is now gone. So things altered with the deer uh, not coming out into just the little the lanes that were picked at that point that I usually have some time or I'd have some standing corn that I could um, sneak in and out of with. But that was all gone. And so that made pinpointing deer on field edges difficult. No worries. We'll just adapt. And using the saddle system helped me adapt, adapt to other new situations. Another thing I had going against me was the normal water hole that we have was dry. All summer it was dry. And I'm not sure what happened there. But then the wet spot that was then be able to draw deer in, at least at some point, and it would be a hotbed area um, come archery, it, it was not drawing the deer like it normally does. So that was strike two. This was, I mean, you're probably looking at this as a land manager and saying, man, Nick, you didn't do anything. Well, you're right. I, I did nothing this year uh, managing-wise. I didn't improve anything. We just let things be as they are. The third strike I had going against me is it was definitely not an acorn year. So now my timber had no acorns really for these deer. I'm sure there were some trees that fruited out, but for the most part, we didn't have any fruiting oak trees where we are at. I'm sure the land and legacy guys could tell me that this is hopefully part of a cycle that we have uh, bounty years and then we have years that there are no acorns. And I'm hoping that that's what they can tell me here soon because that was the case. So now I had food sources that were either absent or manipulated with. I had water that was absent, but I had cover, lots of cover, real thick cover. And that played into the deer's uh, ability to avoid me. Trying to adapt and using the new saddle, I never sat in the same tree twice. I did sit in some of the same area, but at the same time, I would find ways to improve how the sitting, or if that tree just did not feel well or I didn't climb it the right way, I would then find the next tree, you know, 20 yards over or be like, I really wish that I was over there. Well, now I had the ability to do that. So making these adjustments was able to help me have encounters almost every time that I was out there. My problem was proximity. Being that it was such thick cover, being that the the spider web of paths as it would go through 
our property, the deer had many ways to take and many options to go. So I had a lot of deer that would be coming in my direction only to then take a different path, not be spooked, not be alerted to my presence, but just out of range. And for archery, you know, I've, I've put that, my ethical range is like if, if it's at 40, I'm willing to take that shot. I've practiced at longer ranges to be to be very proficient at that range. But you can't, I mean, even if it does say 40 and they're in a big, thick bunch of brush, that's not necessarily the best shot you should be taking anyway. My encounters were either, yeah, further than 40, in a bunch of thick, or just not dark and, or excuse me, not light enough to even take the shot. They would either in be in before daylight or as I'm sitting there now in twilight where it's really getting getting dark and I, I can't see through the sight anymore, here come the deer walking by and I just then had to be patient and wait. So just a lot of factors and a lot of tough stuff. But through that, I was not going to make this a pity party. I was not going to make this a woe is me uh, scenario. I was going to be better than this. I was going to work past it and really try to make the best thing, the, you know, get the best results out of this. So by also using something that was mobile, I then reestablished or I re- kind of took a look at and reestablished some new procedures into going into our property. There were a lot of access routes that I just wasn't using. They were maybe a little bit out of the way. And I had to do some some asking to make sure I had to do some door or uh, uh, make some phone calls or uh, knock on a few doors to make sure that, hey, could I could I traverse onto your property to get back onto mine? So just making, you know, basically talking to neighbors again, reestablishing a relationship and then saying, hey, is it OK to be able to do this? And from that from that venture, I'm then accessing portions of our property that have that we before have been really difficult to access. So with my struggles, with my adversity, I'm, I've made some really important moves. I made some really good things. I would say that uh, my man Nine Finger Fingers, Dan Johnson, helped a little bit with uh, this inspiration going through listening to his podcasts, gleaning these ideas, and now being able to put them into practice really playing the wind on this, where normally I couldn't enter this area because of wind, but now I have got new access. This is going to allow me to do it. In fact, the first, well, it was the second time that I sat in this area with the new access. I was able to set up on some bedding at the very edge with the wind blowing from the bedding towards me. At a Yeah, it was a straight south wind, and it was basically blowing me away from the bedding and down into a ravine. So I felt good scent-wise. One of the oak trees there had really yet to drop all of its leaves. And it was a really good hiding spot up in there. I had good cover even up in the tree. So climbing up in there, I settled up for pretty much a whole afternoon and evening sit. I had occasional does that would come through and make themselves apparent, but again, just not in range. I could not take that shot. 
And I took myself all the way until the last day of archery and the last hour of light. I'm getting frustrated because the next day promises to be real bad weather here in Michigan for the gun opener. And one of my goals I have for myself is to take something with archery equipment. I want I want to take it with a bow first, mainly because Thanksgiving rolls in and all hands are on deck for the Otto family. So I want to make sure that I have the opportunity to take it in archery season so that I can now focus on the family business come gun. Off of the ridge, a pretty good-sized body is coming down uh, down the ridge and turning in my direction. And I told myself at this point, like, all, all bets are in. This is time for you to make the shot. It doesn't matter the size. It doesn't matter uh, what this deer is coming in. This is going to be your deer. It is going to come into range, and you are going to take it. Sure enough, this three-point buck came in to 20 yards on my left-hand side. And for the saddle, that's your strong side. And I'm just about at full draw. And then the deer, he does what deer normally do. He jets away and circles around to my opposite side. Now to my right side, he's peering into the bedding, trying to see what is in the bedding. I have the opportunity to take the bow, go over top of my tether, turn my body completely around as if I'm now pointing, if you were to use a dial of a clock, my five o'clock slot. I'm pushed away from the tree. I'm looking completely behind myself, and I have the deer at 15 yards. Got to full draw, brought my pin down, and punched it. The three-point buck took off with arrow both sticking into the entrance, and I see the exit out the other side. The broadhead had a complete pass-through. He carried the arrow with him a little ways, maybe 15 yards or so. I didn't see it fall out of him, but later I then found the arrow, and about 15 yards is where we end up discovering the arrow. The deer took off and then left my sight, heading towards the ravine. So I made a few phone calls, made the text messages of the shot, let the wife know, and let uh, let my buds know that this had uh, occurred. Packed everything up, started to climb down the tree. I gave him probably a good 45 minutes before I actually was uh, going to the site of the shot. Went to the site of the shot, saw where there were the footprints, saw where he then took off in a direction, broke some twigs, and that began my search for blood. I'm not sure what happened as far as the drainage. It was a little bit high as far as the shot, and I think that all the blood just continued to pool up inside of him as he took off. At first I missed the arrow. I went completely past the arrow. But not finding any blood, not finding anything directly 
related to him taking off other than those broken sticks and the sight of the shot. I thought to myself, I know he's headed down into that ravine. If he goes down into that ravine, he's most likely not coming out. So I'm going to make sure I give this ravine a wide berth. I'm going to head back, and we're going to try a search party once we get some people around. I also wanted to have my boys there to help me. As I began to walk down the path in order to get back towards our house, I walked up on said deer. He was just out of my eyesight around a scrub brush, and he lay there completely dead. So victory right there. Last hour, last day, I'm going to take it. I know there's probably a crowd that's going to say, ah, you know, you need to wait to get him bigger. I This guy is going to taste mighty nice. He's going to taste delicious. And I was super glad to have this. I did go back, get two of my boys, and then we began the process of bringing him around the ravine and towards home. I've not been out west uh, doing a pack out of an animal. I haven't packed out an elk, uh, and I've only been to Colorado for a ski trip. So hiking up and down the mountains is something I'm not, I, I don't know that yet. I have not had that experience. But I feel as if I grasped a little bit of what it's like and what I'm referring to as little Colorado. Because as I retrieve my boys and I look to my wife to be able to help usher the boys through the woods so that we can get the deer, she could then you know, corral the boys, working themselves around, and then I drag back uh, my prize. However, she was not going to join us this time. It was just two of my boys that were going to come along, the oldest being six and the youngest being three. I already knew that I was going to have a tough challenge ahead of me. So the three of us hopped on to our gator and we drove as close as we could. Basically us on one side of the ravine and my buck on the opposite. As we hint, as we got close to the ravine, I tried to tell the boys, listen, you need to stay on this side. Dad is going to be quick. I'm going to go hook on to the deer I am going to then start to drag it over to you guys. You will see my headlight, and I will bring an extra flashlight. You will see me come around towards you. Both of them were in agreement. I ran down the ravine, up the opposite side, got to the deer, and began to get him prepped for the drag around. As I'm beginning to get him prepped... One of my boys, now being the oldest, really wants to be a part of this. It's now getting dark. As, and as I look at him yelling at me across, yelling to me across the way, I see one flashlight toddle on down to the bottom of this ravine. The youngest, not wanting to miss out on anything, also toddles on down all the way to the bottom of this steep ridge. I now have two of my boys in the bottom, my deer at the top, and probably a pretty long drag to get back to this gator. So I stop what I'm doing, go down until I get to the bottom of the ravine. My boys and I have a good talk about 
you need to stay where I asked you to stay. But now we're in the bottom, so now you're going to have to join me. The six-year-old climbed out of the ravine. He did an okay job. The three-year-old, he could not make it. He couldn't get a foothold. He was struggling to both grab onto a tree to pull and hold on to his flashlight. I decided that he needed assistance. So I went to pick him up, and man, he, did he not want that. He did not want to be carried. He wanted to climb out of this ravine. But in order to make this happen, I had to carry him out. So I carried that little guy up and out of the ravine, up to the deer. So here we are, in the dark, flashlights, one of us yelling and screaming because we didn't get to climb out of the ravine, and a dead deer. I began to pull the deer, and I drug it about 20 yards, and I'm going to do a long roundabout way as to not go down into, into the ravine, but skirt the edge so that I didn't have to do the total down and up with this dead animal. As I got about 20 yards, and I'm calling for the youngest to join us, he is now pouting. He is done, and he is going to be holding his ground. So I stop my drag. I go back, and I pick up that child, and I drag and I carry him to the deer. I now pull the deer 20 more yards, only to have the same results happen. Child pouting. I have to stop the drag, go get the child, and bring him back up to the deer. This leapfrog effect happened all the way around the ravine, all the way to the gator. While I have not been out west, while I do not have actual experience of packing out an animal, I have to say that I do have a taste of what it's like having to leapfrog a dead deer and a three-year-old back and forth simultaneously. <laughs> it's going to be fun cause, because when these boys get older, they're going to talk about the great experiences they have. And I think I'm going to have, as much as I enjoy doing this, and I do now enjoy this story being after it, in the middle of it, man, what a headache <laughs> that was trying to bring them along to enjoy an experience only to be fought with or only to be fronted with pouting and being upset. So anyway, my deer had now been retrieved. It been been to the gator. We gut the deer, we bring it back and we hang it up. And that was the last day of archery season. just want to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? or have some show topic ideas, email us at huntivore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, 
head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. So all that to be said about this hunt uh, for a three-point buck, my meat buck, and then the subsequent little Colorado story all leads until up to the butcher day. So I let it hang for seven days. I like to give, if given conditions, personally, I like to go seven days on a hang. Um, Again, conditions are going to apply if, I've, if they're going to be cold temps, and it turned out there was going to be one day in the 50s during the day, and the rest of them were all real low temperatures. So I hung uh, my buck for seven days. And in those seven days, it was also the kickoff to the Michigan gun season. So north of, I forget the line, I forget the road. But anyway, you can use rifles to the north, And in the southern part of the state, it's shotguns or straight-walled cartridges only. So we, with this rule change of using being able to use the straight-wall cartridge, we had many means of take on six white-tailed deer in this week. Uh, First one being my archery deer. Last day, last hour, was able to take it. The second was a uh, 450 Bushmaster that took that one, so we're up to two. The next three were all 12-gauge shotguns. Um, I'm not sure if they were Sabbats or whatever, but anyway, the next three guys got one with the shotgun. And the last, being a small six-point, was taken with a 1987 GMC grain truck. Uh, The front end of that boy real messed up in fact we did have a lot of bruising along the one side and uh yeah we were able to pull him off gut him out and he joined the party to be number six so after that weekend was going to be butcher day one of these deer happened to be a friend of our hunting group that said hey can i just drop my buck off, and or can I drop my doe off and have you take care of it? It would be a real treat to have you guys process this deer. I'm not going to be there for other reasons. He was off to his own little vacation, his own little gun camp up to the north. This will come into play later, but I just wanted to, to settle up that there was going to be someone dropping off their deer to be processed without payment at least at this point. So that'll make itself apparent here later as a lesson. But anyway, our new mission to start Saturday afternoon to process six white-tailed deer. In uh, my shop, what I'm affectionately called HQ. In HQ, I have worked really hard to set up a system that's going to make butchering deer possible. Uh, all centers around a large cut table. I was able to pick up uh, from the turkey farm an unused 
stainless steel table that, oh, I would say measures four foot wide by six foot long. Big enough that we can get not only several deer on, but at the same time have several guys, have several cutters all working at one time. That being the focal point, um, as you come into the shop, though, the first thing that's hanging there is the gambrel, where the deer would then be hung. We had two of those, so we could hang two deer at a time, and that's where the skinning process began. From the, from the skinning process, they would then be broken down into quarters, and they would then be dropped to the table. The table, the quarters, would then be taken apart into the whole muscles, um, and we had chosen this, we had chosen all to agree on doing the least amount of cutting, at least in that evening, and then anything specialized, we would either do last minute or have you freeze it whole and then take care of it later. So we'd all kind of agreed upon whole muscles at this point. So the whole muscles would be, then be pulled from the quarters, cleaned up, and sent over to our guys that were at the vac station. The vac station would receive the cuts, mark the bag, vac the bag, and then that would then go to whosoever box or whosoever crate was going to be taking that home. We did have a fridge and freezer available so that if we needed to get stuff in there, it was available. Uh, it was cold enough that night that we were able to just to have the tubs sitting outside, and then we just filled those up as we needed. A very efficient process. I thought we did quite well. We had a couple guys that would be at the Skinner process, so their first job was to skin that buck or skin that doe. Once it had been skinned, this is where personally I jumped in, and I would then quarter that deer out, break down the midsection, trying to cut as least amount of the spine as possible, and then I was able to then put those quarters onto the table. The table would receive that meat, and that's where the, the breakdown would begun, would began. Working with these fellows particularly, these are some close hunting buddies that I have, and each of them has their own specialty, mine being the after the shot. So going through and helping each one of them with their own personal deer years prior, several of these guys have gotten really good at specific quarters. Some of them could handle the hind legs. Some of them could handle the shoulders. And what an efficient process it was for me to just hand a leg to my leg guy and he just take care of it. And I take another the shoulder and hand it to the shoulder guy and he take care of it. The rest of the guys around did an amazing job of squaring things up, trimming things up, getting silver skin off, dicing up for good burger and grind, and then being able to get that to our vet guys. I mean... We're like a step and a half away from being professional here. We even have running water, or should I say a hose running from the house down to a splitter where I've split to a camp sink and a spray nozzle. Anyway, we could pump water. We could wash things down. We could keep things clean. Overall, I love this process. But now it brings us back to our friend who decided not to show up. But to say, hey, could you take care of this? I'll get you beer later. I'll get you this later. Thanks so much. Bye. I'm going to go continue hunting. We were glad to be able to offer our services to our friend. But having the type of relationship that we have with our group, he did not go unscathed. We did a good job. 
at taking apart his deer. We did a good job at cutting out the quarters and making sure everything was labeled very nicely. Also, with the labeling, we took we took some liberties as to uh, making it a little bit more artistic. But the one big punchline here was that not showing up and then just being okay with whatever was left. He was the guy that used the shotgun. And, man, did he do a number on those front shoulders. A lot of blood meat. Unfortunately, we were not able to keep uh, that front, those two front quarters. There was just too much shards to be going on. And he knew that. So we sent him a picture to say, hey, we're not able to save the front. These are all shot up. But in us taking this apart, we're talking about how our friend is just not around. And these tenderloins are just fresh, ready to go right here. Unfortunately, in our working through all these deer, we are working up an appetite. And we, we convinced ourselves that tasting part of what we are doing is going to be very beneficial. And it just so happened that my chuck box from my camper was sitting off to the side. So out came those tenderloins. And a quick text message. Hey, bud, your tenderloins just were shot out, could not save them. That same message was also followed by a quick video of us having some melted oil, or excuse me, some, some simmering oil, some salt and pepper on tenderloins as we put them into the pan. By no means were we hiding the fact that we were eating his tenderloins. We were just merely teasing him for the fact that you're not here to enjoy the spoils. So amongst the rest of us there, we split these tenderloins and continued to cut all these deer. Mind you, we are not complete savages. We are not completely heart, heartless, but we sent him home with some quality meat and some fun-loving uh, adjectives to describe what is in that package. Well, hey, folks, it may not be a two-dish breakdown, but I got a dish breakdown from Hunt Camp. Now, when I say Hunt Camp, I, I mean, we, we call it Deer Camp, but we could affectionately call it Beer Camp for the fact that getting us together during this time of year is always very difficult. And once we are together, we do like to enjoy our, our own company. So we pick one day of that weekend where we can just get together at our buddy's cabin and just enjoy the evening together and be able to share uh, not only the spoils of what we've got, we save our hearts specifically, but at the same time enjoy each other's company. So, on the menu for this year, no, well, normally it's hearts and onions, heart rings and onions. But this year I tried to take it a step further, and ultimately I think this was a home run of a dish. Heart tacos are nothing new in our field, in, in outdoor cooking, in wild game cooking, we use the heart. And I wanted to try the heart tacos. I had always just done them on their own as a, as a main dish, in a, basically in a, in a ring. Just sliced the heart, seared it, and served it. So I tried the marinated heart taco this year. And I'm going to break down what our marinade is. This is also located in the show notes. Uh, of our show here so you can then follow along if so choose but anyway the marinade I, this recipe 
was for five hearts. Uh, we lost one heart due to somebody being a very good shot, so we were left with five. But we were able to take these five hearts and butterfly them out. I basically made one flap to be the, I'm not sure if it's the left or the right ventricle, basically the, the ventricle that pushes the blood to the aorta and to the, or excuse me, to the lungs, not the aorta. So from the valve that, or the ventricle that goes to the lungs is the smaller, thinner one. That became its own cut. The thicker ventricle, the opposite side, which then pumped the rest of the blood throughout the body, if you checked out your anatomy class from high school, that is what I would then butterfly as the second or the main large piece. So I had those butterflied out. Ventricles and, or excuse me, vessels and any connective tissue was taken on, fat, veins, anything off that, just to leave us with a steak-looking piece of meat. I did some scores to make sure that it would lay flat on my griddle so that we could sear it later. Now time for the marinade. The marinade is made for multiple hearts. So either find yourselves multiple hearts for this recipe or trim down this recipe if need be if you have just a single or two hearts. But it starts out. In a blender, you would add a half a cup of olive oil, a quarter cup of lime juice, a quarter cup of fresh cilantro. If you don't have the fresh stuff and you got the dried, two tablespoons. The zest of one lemon, or excuse me, the zest of one lime, not lemon, but the lime. Remember that one you were making the juice from? Just take the zest off that. That's that outside green layer. Really has a nice taste to it. Three to four garlic cloves, one tablespoon of cumin, two tablespoons of chili powder, cayenne to taste. I don't know if mine was a teaspoon, somewhere in that ballpark, but there was a lot of add, blitz, take a taste. I wouldn't want to burn anybody's mouth off. I was being very cautious. Two tablespoons of salt, and I feel the kicker here is two tablespoons of cocoa powder, the bitter stuff. The stuff that you always wondered, why does mom keep this in the fridge? What, what purpose does this have other than hot cocoa? This cocoa powder is what I think really adds to it. Every, everything else shine because of that bitterness. In fact, traditionally, a, in Mexican cuisine, a mole has cocoa powder in it. So that was my add-in for the marinade here. All of that is in the blender, blitzed smooth. I then take a freezer bag, and in that, I would add a layer of marinade, a couple pieces of meat. Layer of marinade, a couple pieces of meat. I didn't want to get where the pieces of meat or bag were sticking together and they're not be marinade. I wanted to make sure when I got it in there, I was getting full and total coverage. Layer, 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 all the way to the top. Seal the top of the bag with the exception of a straw in the corner. A couple ways you could do this. You could submerge the whole thing in tap water and draw all the water, or excuse me, draw all the air out of the bag. Pull the straw quick, seal it. Method I went with was with that straw in there. I just drew it all out. I just sucked out all the air. And then as soon as I got to the point where I was now starting to suck up marinade, I pulled the straw pulled it or snapped it closed and now it had a slight vacuum seal that all the air was out and the marinade could go to work. 
I did this in the morning before. So it was going to be eight to 10 hours or so that these would get a nice marinade in that. I would leave it in the refrigerator. I actually put it in a bowl, then in the refrigerator, just in case there was a hole in the bag or the seal where it would end up breaking. But every hour I would go and massage that bag, roll it around, and make sure that things were then evenly covered, evenly distrib- distributed, and would just get a jostle. That would stay that way till that evening. Brought it out, brought out the chuck box a second time. This time with the knowledge of the friend that was... Uh, that wasn't present, got that griddle screaming hot. Half of the griddle was for the for the meat. The other half of the griddle was for our corn tortillas. Well, we had corn and flour. I myself really like the corn. I seared those heart steaks. At that point, we had butterflied them all out. Those heart pieces went down. I had a griddle spatula, so I was able to push down on it to really get good contact with that griddle and seared those off. Could you do this on a really hot grill? You betcha. I would say even take it a step further, remove the grate and go directly onto charcoal. I think that would be a step up. All I had was the griddle at this point and a 20-pound propane tank, so that's where I went. Seared those up. I pulled that off. So I got a nice caramelization on the outside of it, even a little bit of char, sliced it up to find that on the inside I had pretty much, you know, you have your, your, your char, your well, your medium well, your rare, all the way down into the middle. And I did have that core be rare. Sliced those up real thin. And at that point, they could be scooped up with the spatula and set into a fresh heated charred tortilla. From there, we had we went real simple on this. Chopped onions, cilantro, and lime juice. Those three combos just made that whole thing sing. Another good friend by the, goes by the name of Ty. He is the redhead of the group. And you'd think that uh, he's probably on the mild side when it comes to what he eats. It's the total opposite. I think his hair gets redder with the hotter and spicier things that he eats, and he enjoys them so much. He is a jalapeno aficionado. He can't get enough of that spicy chili. He downed a whole bunch of his own jalapenos he brought that he had pickled and grown from his, where he had grown from his garden and then pickled, to the point where he went from a red in the face to almost a purple and sweat beating up under his eyes. And he just couldn't talk about how this couldn't get any better. I tell you, I, I think we're going to now, every time that we talk about jalapenos on this show, we need to have a Thai story. So Thai's story this time is that same night where instead of, instead of just putting a few jalapenos on a taco, which I found three, three pieces because he, he bilaterally cut these into little rounds. I found that three and a little bit of the juice was an awesome add of spice to that taco. This kid added spoonfuls and spoonfuls onto each taco. I can only imagine what his porcelain goes through every day at his house. It really must have one hell of a coating. So anyway, that was our simple add-on to our taco was those simple onions, 
lime juice, cilantro, and if you were brave, those jalapenos. You can add anything that you want. I would say just be careful with the cayenne and be careful who you invite to your spicy event. That is my dish breakdown. Oh, well, folks, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and this evening. This has been a grand time for me to just do some storytelling and for you to enjoy the tales that I had over my archery and first part of gun season. Uh, by no means are we done here in Michigan. We still have some late seasons that are available. My my go getness to join into these seasons are going to be a little more relaxed. I think we're going to bring the boys out a few more times. I think I get to be a little bit more choosy and when I go and what I'm after, mainly because I have the satisfaction of knowing that I have meat in the freezer already. It might even be time to spice things up and go to the small game. We've been very one species oriented this past month. And not to say that I'm going to get that I'm getting burnt out, but a change of pace might be nice. It'll also go to help that I saw what seems like a million squirrels and rabbits all season that I think they're just un- unnoticing what is about to happen to them here in the next month or so. So folks, if you've enjoyed our tales, please send me yours. I would love to hear your archery and gun adventures. I would love to hear about your processing night, how things either went your way or didn't. But whatever you're doing during this time of season, whether it's being thankful during Thanksgiving, whether it's prepping for the holiday season, or it's making that amazing dish that you're going to share with the friends and family that you've chosen to be with, always make sure that your knife is sharp.